New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. For more than 50 years, the dream of a free, democratic South Africa has been Dr. Mampela Rampela's focus, and one that has covered her every waking moment in action. She's worked tirelessly for systemic societal change in order to help her country of South Africa break free from the barriers of bondage into freedom. She understands that beyond physical freedom, there is a psychological, self-imposed limitation that must be included in freeing oneself from oppression. She says a fully conscious human being is a citizen who not only asserts their rights and exercises their responsibilities, but is also seized with the historic mission to leave the world a better place. Today, we'll be looking at both the successes and failures of the 23-year history of South African democracy, as well as the 200-plus years of the United States democracy. How are they the same, and how are they different, and what can we learn from them with our guest, Dr. Mampela Rampella? Mampela Rampella is a most extraordinary person and one with whom I'm extremely privileged to host today on New Dimensions. I encourage all our listeners to look up her most extensive resume. Her career encompasses being an activist, medical doctor, academic, businesswoman, and political thinker. Besides her medical degree, she holds a PhD in social anthropology. She was the managing director of the World Bank and is a trustee of the Nelson Mandela Foundation, as well as chairwoman of the Bishop Desmond Tutu Trust. She also serves as co-president of the Club of Rome, which was founded in 1968 as a nonprofit informal organization of intellectuals and business leaders whose goal is to identify holistic solutions to complex global issues and to promote policy initiatives and actions to enable humanity to emerge from multiple planetary emergencies. She's the author of several books, including A Passion for Freedom, Conversations with My Sons and Daughters, and Dreams, Betrayal, and Hope, 
Join us for the next hour as we explore the fascinating and relevant fledgling democracy of South Africa with our guest, Dr. Mampella Rampella. I'm speaking with Dr. Rampella by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Dr. Rampella, welcome. Thank you so much, Justine. I'm privileged to be on your show. Oh, thank you so much. It's it's my honor to have you. I know that there was a time in your life that was particularly challenging. And this was prior to the election in 1994 of Nelson Mandela as a president of the Republic of South Africa. And I'm talking about the the years of 1976 and 77 when apartheid was still in place and you were banished to Zanin in northern Transvaal and you were under police surveillance. And and at the same time, your partner and fellow founder of the Black Consciousness Movement, Steve uh, Biko, was brutally assassinated. So my question during this time, how did you keep your head above water? I'm, I'm aware that most of us would rightfully hate those who perpetuated such atrocities, but you didn't go there. Um, so please help us understand your life at that time. My life has been and continues to be shaped by the coming into consciousness of my generation in the late 60s when we woke up to the fact that there is something wrong with a majority population being oppressed and held in bondage by a minority. We asked ourselves, what's wrong with us that this is happening? It is at the same time that students in the USA, your country, were rising up against the Vietnam War. The civil rights movement was at its peak. Malcolm X was really hitting it. And we started realizing that we have to travel inside ourselves to ask that question. What is it that's giving permission to a minority to oppress a majority. It is when we realize that all these years of 400, at that time it was 300 years, some change of colonial conquest, our ancestors accepted being labeled non-Europeans, non-whites in a country of their birth. How, how, what level of arrogance gives someone permission to move from Europe to go to a continent of Africa and then label people as non-Europeans? And when we connected with that at a very deep level, we realized that we are conniving with, giving permission to our oppressors to oppress us because we accept that they have set themselves as a standard. Whiteness is the standard and everything else is none. Europe is the standard and everything else is. So that 
consciousness gave us the wings, the power, the passion to know that we are up against a brutal regime, but we made a pact that we are either going to die fighting for freedom or fight until we get our freedom. So when my comrades, starting with Mapetla Mohapi and, and Steve Biko, were killed in the aftermath of the uh, Soweto uprising, I knew that I had no option but to keep going. So when they killed Steve, uh, I was in the pro, we had agreed that anyway, it's a matter of time, we'll reconnect because we were planning on getting married. But then when he died, obviously there was not going to be that. So I had to sink my roots where I was banished and worked with very supportive local people, chiefs, the Catholic church, and in the end, we resuscitated the model that they had taken me away from Zanempilo Community Health Center to set up e 2 Community Health Center, which is help yourselves. Because the people in that area, like most people in South Africa, were just helpless. And we were able, because we had been liberated inside, to help them to liberate themselves. Mm. And that's what kept me going. Yes. When the political settlement uh, was instituted in 1994, it was a good start. And you used the analogy of a three-legged pot. And, and you said, okay, uh, you know, this pot is not stable, though. There are some legs missing. So what was missing from that settlement? That settlement was unfortunately negotiated between a group of people who were a segment of liberation movement, many of whom had been in exile or in jail, like Mandela. And so as Mandela himself recognized, we had a big conversation about this because I used to visit him in jail when he was at Victor Firstet. He said to me, Mampela, we're coming back to a country we no longer know. It's important that we have advisors from people in academia, civil society to help us. Unfortunately, his comrades from exile, particularly later President Tabombeki, said they have their own people. And so what we had at the negotiation table was the apartheid government thoroughly prepared to extract every concession, negotiating without wanting to give up power. Mm. So what they did was to negotiate a political settlement with a very good constitution, which basically was to protect them rather than protect the rest of us. Uh, because you cannot have political freedom without socioeconomic freedom. So the, when I talk about the three-legged pot, we had the one leg, which is very strong, of the political settlement. The second leg, which was a, a very short little leg, was the social uh, settlement. The economic settlement, 
was a reinforcement of the privileges, the protection of the privileges that white people and the white regime had accumulated from colonial days, which is why up to today, we're sitting with a country where 10% of the population is well off, 20% is okay, the 1% that's super wealthy is super wealthy, but the majority of people are poor. And it's not going to be changed by black economic empowerment, which is the dummy, you know, the pacifier that you give a baby when they're crying. That's exactly what was given to the majority population in 1993 when they were negotiating the, the final version. And so we need to make sure we stabilize this African three-legged pot by renegotiating a socioeconomic settlement that will produce the justice that's needed. I want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Dr. Mempella Rampella, and she is the author of Dreams, Betrayal, and Hope. She's a South African citizen, and if you want to know more about her work, and I encourage you to look at this up, her website is mompelarampella.com. And I'm going to spell her name slowly for you. It's Mompella, M-A-M-P-H-E-L-A. Her last name, Rampella, R-A-M-P-H-E-L-E.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. here with Dr. Mampella Rampella, and she is the author of Dreams, Betrayal, and Hope, and a South African activist and wonderful person who is just contributing so much to the world in so many ways. I want to ask you, Dr. Rampella, about the um, African saying. There's a beautiful saying. It says, when we walk fast, we walk alone. But if we want to walk far, we must walk together. So tell me about the wisdom of that saying and how it's important, not only to South Africa, but here in the U.S. It can be applied to us right now as we 
here in the U.S. have so much discord. There's so so many similarities uh, between our cultures in in that way. Well, the one good piece of news for all listeners everywhere is that human beings are wired to be interconnected and interdependent. And so we are at our best when we are surrounded by people who support and or have real serious conversations with us, even if we may disagree, but we are able to talk things through so that we have a richer set of perspectives to tackle the many problems. So the the saying about if you want to walk far, you walk together. But if you want to walk fast, you walk alone. Fast speed and competition is the bane of life today. We are where we are because we have forgotten the essence of being human, which is this interconnectedness and interdependence, that there is no need for competition. Now, more and more young people and some business schools are waking up to the fact that it's no longer competitive advantage, it's collaborative advantage. Because when we collaborate, we are bringing together different assets, different talents, different size of the story that makes for a richer understanding because life is complex. Life is not a linear equation that you can trump up and think you'll get there. And so what I would love to see in the world is to begin to have those conversations in families, in communities, in, in countries, not the kind of parliamentaries, grandstanding, but real conversations right, right. in legislatures. You know, there's an example in your book, uh, Dreams, Betrayal, and Hope. There was an example of a young woman who was part of a very difficult conversation. When you're talking about having these conversations about what needs to happen and political action and not everybody's agreeing, they're not comfortable. We are feeling the pain of the discomfort of these conversations, and we want to just kind of go through them fast. And this young woman said, oh, please, let's linger longer. And that goes back to that walking together. I just think about walking together and lingering together and just taking our time. You said being fast is a bane of civilization. So this idea to linger together and even in our discomfort. So share share wisdom, your wisdom and experience on this thought. I just want to use a simple example of the home setup where a baby or a child or even an adult child doing something really outrageous. You can fly into a rage and then what? But if you were to just stay in that position of discomfort and ask yourself, what's happened? This child is not normally like that. The same thing happens at the national level where or at the workplace. Instead of when a colleague or a boss or somebody says something that's really outrageous, instead of 
responding in like manner. Just stop. That stops that other person in their tracks as well because they will have to ask the question, why is this person not angry? Why are they not flying into a rage? And then they'll start realizing, I'm sorry. Mm. And, And this is how life should be. But unfortunately, technology, which we love so much, has changed the depth and style of conversation. Once you hit the send button on an email that is written in anger, it's gone. Whereas if you had slept over the issue, and then you might have a different perspective in the moment or a better language, to communicate even strong disagreement, but in a manner that builds the bridge with the other person. I think that we can all uh, relate to that where we've regretted sending off some sort <laughs> of email that or text or something that was not um, very that was not well thought out. And and this also takes us to the African concept of. Ubuntu. 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 Yeah. Can you tell us, um, you know, here in the U.S., our culture reveres uh, individualism and Ubuntu is, is a different concept. So can you share that with us, please? Yes, of course, Justin. Ubuntu is a philosophy of life, which is common to all indigenous people all over the world. It may have different names, but it's the same concept, which is an understanding that a human being is at the core, a social, interconnected, interdependent entity within the web of life. So it's not Ubuntu is not only about the relationships between people. Human beings are relational between one another, but also between themselves and the web of life. We are contained within the web of life that Mother Nature nurtures. And so one has to think about the consequences of your words, your actions, your body language, everything that you do, and what is the impact of this on the web of life. We are where we are today with COVID, with all the emergencies of climate change, because we didn't pay attention to the impact of our footprints on the ecosystems we occupy and on the larger biosphere. And now we are in trouble. We are in crisis because we've broken the golden rule of life. Life is interconnected, interdependent. There is no me, myself, and I in real life. And individualism is fed by this notion that we live in a survival of the fittest world. No, we live in a world which is an ecosystem. And in every ecosystem, you find diversity which coexist and different species 
plants, animals, insects coexist to make life possible and to enhance the well-being of every living thing. Yes, well said. I would love for you to say something about, I know it's dear to your heart, the whole educational system where you encourage, and I, I know that others encourage the teaching of history, that, that, that this is being kind of left out of both here in the U.S. I mean, we have uh, critical race theory is being um, being frowned upon and, and people are saying, no, you can't teach the true history of the United States and the true history of of slavery and these peoples. And so what, what would you say about the teaching of history, both here in the U.S. and in uh, South Africa? We must remember that one of the most powerful weapons in the hands of oppressors is the mind of the oppressed. And that mind has been manipulated across the globe Colonial conquerors imposed upon countries that they captured an education system, which is an industrial education to produce laborers and compliant workers. Whereas a free people have to be people who have an education, a learning process that starts with who am I? Where do I come from? So you have to look back to history, your ancestry, and to look forward to the future. And then look at what am I doing today to shape the future I want. Africa has been designated in historical documents from hundreds of years as a dark continent, as a continent with no history, as a continent which has no civilization. Guess what? Africa is not just the cradle of humanity. It is a cradle of civilization. Human civilization started here. And the monuments are there. You can't destroy those pyramids. They were not built by Arabs. They were built by people who look like me. And so that history was stolen. In fact, an African-American professor, Douglas, he wrote a book he published in 1955 called The Stolen Legacy. So anybody who wants to understand the importance of history must go there because what we call Greek philosophy is African philosophy, which was taught to the Greeks by Egyptian priests who were, again, looking like me. And so Africa has not only been dispossessed of the land, the material, well-being, and the minerals, etc., but also of its history, its intellectual property. And so it's very important that every country, particularly on the continent, must transform completely their education systems and start with every day, every session with who are we? How are we feeling? And how what is what we are feeling strengthened, made wiser by the wisdom of our ancestors 
And how do we free ourselves from the idea, which again was implanted by colonialists, that Africans cannot think in three dimensions. They cannot do math. What total nonsense that is. Because uh, the evidence is there. Thank you. Thank you for setting us straight on that. I'm here with Dr. Mampella Rampella, and she is the author of Dreams, Betrayal, and Hope. I'm Justine Willis-Toms, and you're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Mampella Rampella, and she's a medical doctor and also an activist, and she's just participating on the world stage in a big way. As we talk about education, there's something that really popped out at me. Two things about South Africa. The first thing is that it has to do with when white people came and they started to do schools or whatever they were doing in South Africa, they had trouble pronouncing the African names. And of course, had trouble with the languages, the different, I mean, South Africa is a multi-languaged uh, country. I mean, many, many, many languages. So number one, they tried to change the names of these children. Names really have a great significance in Africa. They mean something. And secondly, to try and and just negate their mother tongue the, that these children grew up with. So uh, I would love your comment about that because I think it's so, so important to know about this history and how it was uh, devastated and interrupted in this way. Well, it's actually worse than they didn't know how to pronounce the names because if they wanted to, they do. I mean, if you're an Englishman, you go to France, you, produce, you pronounce very difficult French names. But what we are talking about here is total humiliation of a people, total negation of their culture, their history, their name. And names are sacred in Africa because they, they have a meaning. Every family gives a child a name for meaning. And children are named after generations past and they are expressions of hope and aspirations. What we have here is the imposition of so-called Christian names. So if you were a child, Mandela is a prime example of it. His parents gave him his name, Holy Sasha Mandela. He got to school and the teacher said, what's your name? Holy Sasha. No, you are Nelson. And that was it. He's Nelson Mandela because you couldn't be registered if you didn't have a Christian name. Now, what kind of Christianity is that that undermines the cultural setting of people? I mean, 
any theologian will tell you that a true religions find expression and root themselves in the culture and the language of the people. So this question of names, it was part of the colonial conquest to be able to not only conquer your land, but conquer your spirits by renaming you some white man. I mean, have you ever walked in London and met a man called Matumi? No, but I asked my patients that when I was still uh, an active doctor and they'll come and say, what's the name of the child Samuel? I said, no, what's the name that you gave to, some, to this child? Then they'll say, well, Luvuyo, I said, right. Let's be happy because Luvuyo means happiness or gratefulness, joy. I said, if you do that, the ancestors immediately come back, come around us here. So the healing of this child is facilitated by inviting the spirits through the name, which connects this child to generation upon generation of of his uh, family. And so what we have because of this sacrilege is multi-generational trauma in much of not just Africa, but all regions where colonial conquerors came and disrupted. Well, it, it happened in the U.S. when when African people were brought in as slaves to the U.S. and then they they had to take other names, not their given names. And, and so it happened that humiliation happened here too. Absolutely. I mean, it's worse when you get the name of your slave master. So you really become part of his property in every way. I want to, to also talk about, you use a phrase that really kind of struck me. You talked about, you use a phrase called apartheid cities. And we, and this is where there's a similarity between South Africa and the U.S., because um, in some ways, we continue to live here in the U.S., in my opinion, uh, as in a, an apartheid situation. Uh, and um, these cities that get divided, uh, like here in the U.S., uh, many of them were divided by freeways, that they had robust neighborhoods that were thriving and doing well, and suddenly a freeway is put through. We saw this in Buffalo just recently, where there's one part of Buffalo that only has one grocery store and they're separated from, from their neighbors by this six-lane highway. So we have this these neighborhoods of poverty here in this, this country. So please talk about what you mean by apartheid cities. Well, these were cities in South Africa, and you'll see it also in other parts of the continent and in many uh, countries where there was colonial conquest, like your own country here. It's what can only be described as the politics of space, where you deliberately design in inequality and marginalization of the majority population or the population that you want to oppress, 
and, and exploit to be at the margins of cities. And so they spend more money on transportation. They have less safety, less security, less access to the real assets of a city, which is the shopping, the cinemas, the cultural life of a city. Now, the tragedy of South Africa is that in 1994, when this negotiation process was taking place, there was no discussion of how to undo the geopolitics of our cities. And you will be shocked to hear that ever since 1994, we haven't built one city which is designed for inclusion, which is designed to model what a modern 21st century city could look like. And this has been done by our government, a government that claims to represent the majority. Why? Because many of the people in our government never freed themselves. They are not liberated here. They are not liberated in their souls. And this is the reason why we also have what the world has been reading about, state capture. They are just continuing the extraction that the colonial system had, money which is meant to be going to build new infrastructure for the growing population, improve the conditions of life of many people, is going into the pockets of a few, the me, myself, and I. And even the party, the ANC, which claims to be the party of Mandela, has changed its ethos. It's no longer the party of Mandela that we knew. It is a party where people are in positions of power, the majority of them, to enrich, to enrich themselves. And this has been detailed in the report by the Chief Justice Zondo of just how far deep this corruption has gone. Now, corruption is a symptom of a society that has lost its soul a society that has failed to liberate its mind and its spirit and its culture from the colonial mentality that was imposed upon us. So the apartheid geography is alive and well in South Africa. And the government of South Africa, post-1994, 28 years late, they haven't got a plan. Of how they're going to transform this. In city. in your world travels and in all of your connections uh, through, like let's say, the Club of Rome and and when you were part of the World Bank and all of that. In your connections, is there an example that you know of of a city that has been well designed to to include? the entire diverse population and, and is thriving uh, economically and socially. Do, is there an example of a city? I, I, I saw this the first time in Northeast Brazil, where people had a slum city in the sea, these kind of uh, shacks built on stilts. And the government of Brazil at the time was very progressive 
it was under Cardoso. And what they did was to have a compact with the slum dwellers that you are allocating this land for you. And we're going to make sure that one of you, somebody must be working so that they've got money to sustain the, uh, the property. And then they will build affordable homes for people. But people participated in the process. The mistakes South African government made in 1994 was to say, we will build you houses. People are still waiting for those houses. People are not passive children who are to be just sitting there waiting for. South Africa was offered models of development and I was part of the Independent Development Trust. We demonstrated that site and service systems, they produce incredible opportunities for people to have houses of their own choice and design. They have skin in the game and they become proud owners. So what we are watching in South Africa is failure of governance, failure of imagination. So we need to reimagine our cities, our towns, our rural areas in order to get people, the individuals, the citizens, the families, the communities to reimagine a different future and participate in shaping it. I recently saw the documentary that CNN did with Alexei Navalny, who is um, an activist in Russia, and um, he's now returned to Russia and he's now in jail. But he said he's about this is, has to do with people not being passive. And he said, don't be afraid, don't be silent, resist. You are not alone. We are many. And he said, the future is ours, so don't be inactive. Uh, so that seems to go along with what you're saying. I want to remind our listeners that I'm here with Dr. Mampella Rampella, and she is the author of Dreams, Betrayal, and Hope. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Mami Zolo, we Mami Zolo, we Mami Zolo, we Mami Zolo, Mami Zolo, we 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 Mami I'm here with Dr. Mampella Rampella, and she is the author of Dreams, Betrayal, and Hope, and is a South African citizen and a world citizen, I must add, too. And um, there's an example that you give in the book that I was not aware of, and this was an example of a country 
that did something quite extraordinary, and it was Germany after the Berlin Wall fell. And it was an example of where the East Germans were not equal economically or educationally with the West Germans. So they did something to bring that together that I felt was extraordinary. I think it was called Long-Term Solidarity Fund. Mm -hmm. Um, So can you describe that and was it successful and how did it succeed? Well, that is a program which understands that too great a degree of inequality makes human community impossible. The German uh, chancellor at the time, Helmut Kohl, understood that to get East and West Germany to become one Germany, you cannot have the disparities of income, opportunities, Uh, that were existing at that time. And so he persuaded his fellow citizens to agree to higher taxes for people who are from the West and also a budget allocation that favored the landers, as they call them, the districts or provinces that are in the East so that they could invest enough public resources into infrastructure, housing, schools, hospitals, the works. And that pact was agreed and it was to run, I think, until 2019 or something like that. And there was a few who complained, but he kept on reminding them that what you are going to be paying in extra taxes and less money allocated to you is much cheaper than what you will have to pay if you keep this inequalities and the anger and the rage that it might generate. Now, you just have to look at my country because knowing that, having experienced that, we advised the ANC government and it wasn't just the likes of me, even some people in government, I mean, in, in the business sector, all funds that please ask us to pay more tax over time so that you've got enough resources. No, 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 no. We have enough resources. We don't need to do that. And this is arrogance of ignorance. Yes. When you are ignorant and you are not willing to listen, and it's again going back to if you want to walk fast and if you want to walk together. It is the idea that as government, they must know. So who are you, Mr. and Mrs. Citizen, to advise us? It is very unwise. Mm. Because had we done what Germany has done, we would be very far. We would not be having state capture. We would not be having the violence, gender-based violence, the schools that are, de- the floods that are devastating KZN. It's because we didn't build any new infrastructure after 1994, because we, not only was the money being siphoned off, but there wasn't even enough willingness to use the many, many civil engineers we have in the country. It was all jobs for pals and so many middle people that by the end of it, even ESCOM, which was a world-class power station, I mean, power generator, is now on his knees. 
And this is all because the elites didn't understand the cost of a society that is unequal. So uh, this also reminds me of how corporate leaders need to assume the possibility of more um, a responsibility, you know, rather than looking at shareholders, looking at citizens. What would you say about corporate responsibility? Well, I have to say that because we failed to negotiate a just socioeconomic system, we left corporates to be runaway fires. I mean, I remember listening to one of the corporate leaders say, guys, I don't know what you're complaining about. We've never been richer. We've never done so much business. And many of them externalized their resources because there wasn't enough regulation. There wasn't enough, there wasn't enough knowledge to regulate. Our borders are now porous and you can imagine what's going on. So the issue of corporates is really dependent on a government that knows how to regulate, a government that is accountable, and a government that encourages collaboration between civil society, the corporate sector, and government, not this thing in South Africa of big business. What is big business? What is important is all economic players, all citizens must feel that they have ownership of the country and they have fair opportunities to participate in earning livelihoods that will give them dignity. We have an inflated welfare uh, program, which is actually not making much of a difference to the poor people that it is supposed to target. What can you do with 350 rand, which in today's dollar is, you know, you go to the grocery store, you probably get bread and a few things, and that's it. And this is supposed to last you for a month. This is supposed to be the idea of a COVID support. So there is also an element within what's going on in South Africa of the government looks down upon people who are black like them because they have not yet in internalized the idea of black people being not just equal, but being fully entitled to respect, dignity, and capability. Our education system is a mess because the government doesn't believe that black children can do mathematics. So what you're saying is that even in uh, the government, when there are black people in the government, they continue to have this internal thinking that they're not enough, even there, so that they assume that the people that they're serving still are not intelligent enough or or they're less than in some way is that is that what you're yes. saying when you have you don't have self-worth self-respect you are not going to be able to respect people who look like you and you have this notion that uh, they are the masses they're not the masses they're citizens and they are fully entitled to dignity respect 
and the opportunities for their children. And so what we have is a country seriously in need of healing of the wounds of multi-generations of humiliation and also the healing of the wounds of the citizens who are allowing this government. Because let's agree, the government is voted in by citizens. So it means this woundedness, this lack of self-respect and dignity and the sense of, I have the power to influence. That has to be rebuilt. And we had rebuilt it in the 70s, in the 80s. People are not stupid. People are not passive. They just are confused because they thought, this is our government that's going to look after our needs and our interests. It's not. And now it is too late. Some of them go into, which is another thing that happens in situations like that, which is destruction of public property, which is actually the property of the people who are doing the destroying. So back to Germany, unless you take active steps to equalize opportunities, to restore dignity, to invest in hope and public services that are going to give people a sense of possibilities, we are not going to go very far. Yes, yes, there, there you go. And uh, in just this last minute or so, is there any wisdom or any experience that you feel uh, hopeful about the future? Well, Justin, I'm 74 and I'm still going because there are young people today who are standing up. If you go back to look at the elections, the local elections of 2021, a shift is occurring in South Africa. Young people are saying, it's our future. We are going to shape it. And they are connecting. They are using social media creatively and constructively to make sure that young professionals, uh, entrepreneurs, civil activists are working together. And they are building coalitions, citizen coalitions, to make sure that impunity, which has settled in our government is showing the door. Wonderful, wonderful. I've been speaking with Dr. Manpala Rampelli, and she is the author of Dreams, Betrayal, and Hope. And if you want to know more about her work, go to her website. I highly suggest it. Go to her website, Manpella Rampella, and I'll dot com, and I'll spell her name M-A-M-P-H-E-L-A. Rampella, R-A-M-P-H-E-L-E dot com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3760. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973 thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts 
and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.